Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Michelle May. Dr. May is a former family physician and recovered yo-yo dieter. She's the founder of Am I Hungry? Mindful Eating Programs and Training at amihungry.com. Over 700 health professionals have been trained to offer her mindful eating workshops worldwide. She's also the author of the Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat book series that teaches mindful eating to help individuals resolve mindless and emotional eating and senseless yo-yo dieting to live the vibrant life they crave. In the episode, Dr. May shares why healthcare would benefit from switching to a weight-neutral approach, where traditional weight loss advice goes wrong, how to become a mindful eater, and more. But before we get to the episode, I want to share one of my favorite resources with you, thrivemarket.com. I don't know about you, but I used to think eating healthy meant I had to spend a lot of time and money at the grocery store until I discovered Thrive Market. Thrive is an online grocery shopping platform that's essentially a mix of Costco, Whole Foods, and Amazon. Since Thrive delivers groceries directly to your door, they're able to cut out all middle people and heavily discount their inventory. When I buy groceries on Thrive versus going to my local supermarket, I save at least $20 per order, and I'm able to fill up my cart from the comfort of my couch. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click to the link in the show notes. All right, it's time to hear from Dr. May. Enjoy. I'm Brooke Simonson certified nutrition coach and your host of the health investment podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week I interview experts and share no nonsense research backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Thanks for having me, Brooke. I'm excited to talk with you. I only publish the audio. I wish everybody could see your beautiful video background you have here. Only I get to enjoy it. And I am saying that with full sincerity because I see a lot of backgrounds. I'm sure we all do these days. And yours is really, really nice. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Maybe the listeners will catch you on another platform or YouTube or something. They'll see your background then because they should check it out for sure. Thank you. (laughs) Can you start off by telling us all a bit about your background and specifically what led you to become a physician? You know, I think I knew I wanted to be a doctor when I was a little girl. I'm not sure I knew exactly why, but back then, um, I won't say how old I am right now, but uh, back then there was really just only a few professions that women went into. And 
doctor being one of them and lawyer not being an acceptable alternative in my little mind at the time. So I really started early on thinking that's where I was going to go. My, my father was also in, in radiology as a tech and a manager. So I had some exposure there and, you know, I loved it. I, I really loved medical school. I loved, I love the work of it the the challenges of it, but I really loved the learning and loved my medical practice. I was in family medicine for about 16 years. And then during that time, I really discovered that a lot of my patients like me were struggling with disordered eating and yo-yo dieting. And that led me down an entirely different path. I did both for a while and then eventually decided that I wanted to put all of my attention on mindful eating and helping people heal their relationship with food. Oh, wow. I very much relate to that. I don't, I say sometimes to my husband when I'll hear of a new profession, and I think there's so many new jobs that exist now that didn't when I was 10 or even 18, but like, oh, I had no idea this was a job that was out there for me that I could do type of thing, because I also felt my mom was a teacher. My dad was in the car business. I had aunts and uncles who were lawyers, but it was just very like you could be a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer. And so I actually started out being a teacher um, and then migrated to what I do now. But that uh, I relate to that very much, especially with your father being a doctor. But that's great that you found a path that you really enjoyed. Yeah. And to clarify, my, my, my mother uh, was a teacher and eventually a principal. My daughter uh, was as well. Uh, my father wasn't actually a radiologist. He was in the tech and you know, he was a tech and a, and a manager, but it was enough to give me that exposure. And he was really excited about it and talked a lot about the body, the human body and how fascinating it was and that kind of thing. And, mm. you know, really that's all any child needs is for an adult to show some passion for the work they do. Right. I, I went down the medical rabbit hole at one point and decided maybe I should be a doctor. And then I am from Arizona and I went to this kind of prospective students weekend at University of Arizona. I think I was with both my parents, maybe just my dad, but uh, <laughs> they were talking about things that were just really grossing me out. And I remember turning to my dad and saying, are there any doctors you can be that don't have to ever see blood or deal with blood? And he said, no, there aren't. No. And so that was the end of it for me. No, right no, there. No, it doesn't happen. Well, that's funny because I actually went to the University of Arizona and I, oh, you did? I do live in Arizona. So we're oh. probably neighbors. Who knew? Yeah, that is, that's very funny. I, I don't think I realized that. So kind of diving into then what you have shifted into now in your career, I know you co-authored an article on reviewing the scientific evidence for why healthcare should shift to a weight neutral approach. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, you know, it wasn't where I started as I made the shift into mindful eating, but I have worked with thousands of people who have struggled with food and, and their bodies. And one of the underpinnings, it, well, there's really two big ones. One of them is diet culture. We live in a culture that is obsessed with eating right and looking a certain way. And of course, the medical profession plays right into that. And there's also a thin ideal that many people are subject to. And what happens then is people get 
left out in the medical space. If the medical profession, the healthcare profession assumes that everything is related to a person's body weight, either that they are automatically healthy or automatically unhealthy, a lot of things get missed. A lot of conversations go awry. And I really felt like we needed to look at the scientific evidence for why we might want to make a shift to a more inclusive approach. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, on your website, you write, as a physician, I am well aware that healthcare has a weight-centric view. This contributes to ineffective weight loss advice, missed diagnoses, as you just mentioned, and weight stigma. Can we tackle each of those? So could you first describe how healthcare's weight-centric view contributes to ineffective weight loss advice? Yeah. So when you look at the science, what we know is that that most diets are ineffective. Now, I, I say that with a caveat because most weight loss research does not go on for long enough to really say that it can be effective. You know, we're not looking for short-term change. We know diets work temporarily. All of, Most of us have done it. I certainly have. That's not the metric that we would be looking at a successful diet is, can you lose weight for six weeks, eight weeks, a year? By two years, the dropout rate is huge and the regain weight is also very, very common. Now, that doesn't get reported very much. You know, shorter term studies get reported or studies get reported where they don't include the percentage of dropouts in their final analysis. They, they report how effective it was on, on the people who stayed in. Well, if you're missing 60% of the people who started, then, then you're going to make some assumptions about the effectiveness of that intervention that isn't really accurate. So I think that was one big aha for me is that this, the research in this field is it does not support the, the common advice to eat less, exercise more, which, by the way, is one of the myths in this, in, in this field. It is not simply a matter of eat less and exercise more. A person's body weight is determined by a complex interaction of genetics, social environmental factors, of course, what we eat and how much we exercise, but physiology and all kinds of things that are really many of which are really not even under an individual's control. So if we're giving simplistic advice about what you should and shouldn't eat, for many people, that is not going to create long-term change. Um, and in fact, weight isn't a behavior anyway. So if we want to help people improve their well-being, then we want to focus on behaviors that could be uh, modified and sustained. If weight is not a behavior, then spending a lot of a, a lot of your time recommending weight loss really loses the opportunity to find out what what other behavior changes an individual might be willing to undertake that really could make a difference in their well being. Right. That's that's really interesting. Uh, do you are you familiar with Karen Koenig's work at all? Yes, I know Karen a bit. I know a bit of her work, okay. but. Mm -hmm. She, I had her on uh, a couple weeks ago, and she was saying, I'm going to probably mess this up, but that habits are the locomotive and weight loss is the caboose. Mm. 
which I thought was such an interesting way to think about it of, mm-hmm. or, you know, attaching with habits, any action you're taking or whatever it's, if you're focusing on the weight loss, you know, that comes at the very end of all small habit changes or different things you can do or mindset shifts. Uh, but focusing on the weight loss is not the way, like you said, that's not the behavior. Exactly. So I agree with that. And I would add that sometimes weight loss doesn't follow. Right. So if we're still being weight centric and assuming that weight loss will follow, or we're assuming that if it doesn't follow, then something's wrong. I think we're also missing the boat because Mm -hmm. when you look at various research uh, studies about this, what we know is it's the behavior changes that make the difference. It, it really is that that makes the biggest difference in a person's well-being. It may or may not change their body weight. So if we could stop assuming that someone is successful or unsuccessful based on whether their weight changes, then we can both free ourselves as clinicians, but our patients up to focus on things that they're willing and able to do long term. Right. That's, that's a really good point. How does the weight-centric view in healthcare contribute to missed diagnoses? It works both ways. So let's say that I'm seeing a patient. I'm, it's busy. I have you know a limited amount of time. Uh, he or she walks in and their BMI, which is a whole other discussion. BMI is problematic on a bunch of different levels. But let's say that, that the BMI has been calculated before I've walked into the room and I see that they are in the air quote normal BMI range. Or worse yet, I just look at them and say, oh, they look healthy. I may not ask them about their nutrient intake, their exercise patterns. I may not check appropriate screening tests if you know at, at whatever age they are. I may not ask them the questions that may help prevent conditions and problems down the road because I'm just assuming they're healthy because they're in a air quote normal BMI range. On the flip side, when you look at the research, what we know is that the lowest risk of mortality actually falls in the overweight range. So 25 to 30 approximately and on the BMI range. And I'm a little reluctant to use BMI anyway, but that's what the studies use. That's actually the lowest risk. The second lowest risk is in the in the uh, first category of, of obesity. Again, that's problematic as well. And we can talk about that, Brooke, if you want to you know, talk about why I'm kind of hedging on these words, because they in and of themselves are stigmatizing. But in the range from 30 to 35, that's the second lowest risk of mortality. So people may very well have a lower risk of mortality when they're in the overweight or even uh, first stage of obesity, according to the BMI range. But that's not what clinicians think. They assume that there's something wrong. They may um, advise people to lose weight who came in for an unrelated problem, you know, an upper respiratory infection or some other condition, and then may give unsolicited advice to to do some diet plan. Um, Further, oftentimes, testing isn't done because it's just assumed that the problem is that the person is needs to lose weight. And if they do, their knee pain, for example, will just go away. 
that isn't that isn't fair and it actually turns out to not be the case so one of my pieces of advice i like to speak about this at medical conferences and and hospitals and other places where we can have an impact and i tell clinicians one of the questions you should ask yourself is well what would i do or recommend for a thin patient start there a weight-inclusive approach says that you're going to give the same level of care, the same, the same attention to your physical exam and your laboratory studies and your radiologic studies as you would in a person um, who is in a smaller body. Hmm. Yeah, so the final piece of that is you said that the healthcare weight-centric view contributes to weight stigma. Yes. Can you talk more about that? Yes. So weight stigma is a huge issue. And in fact, stigma of any sort, bias of any sort, can lead to higher levels of stress in an individual, which can increase inflammation and which can at least partially explain some of the associations, the correlations that we see between weight and certain diseases. Now, realize the how careful I was to use the word correlation because this is one of the problems that happens in a weight-centric approach to healthcare is we confuse, even though we're all scientists and well-trained, we confuse correlation with causation. Let me give you a very specific example of this. So there's a lot of things that are correlated with certain conditions, but let's take diabetes. It is commonplace, even in the lay, the lay literature out there, to assume that, that being overweight, and I'm using air quotes if you could see me, being overweight causes diabetes. Well, here's the thing. Type 2 diabetes is due to insulin resistance. We have invisible insulin resistance going on in our body if we're genetically prone to that. Yes, there are, there are other factors that can turn that process on, um, like lack of physical activity, for example. But the simple, simple explanation here is that we have insulin resistance going on, and it is, it is causing our body to gain weight and increasing the risk of diabetes. So these two things, weight gain and diabetes, are going up as a result of this invisible process of insulin resistance going on. At some point, somebody receives the diagnosis of diabetes, and by this time, they've gained weight. And then the assumption is made that it is the weight that caused the diabetes rather than it being the insulin resistance that caused both. It's a classic it's a classic example of correlation versus causation. So we just have to be really careful about that because when we assume that it's the weight that causes the problem, then we may inappropriately recommend weight loss to solve the problem. And we already know from the research that weight loss is ineffective in most people over a long period of time. And for using this example, diabetes is a chronic disease. It doesn't matter if you can get somebody to lose weight for a few weeks or months or even a year or two. What we need to do long-term is manage diabetes, help people get their glucose in the target range to prevent complications. That's the goal is getting and keeping your blood glucose in the target range. 
it's making me think of the Hippocratic oath you take as doctors, which correct me if I'm wrong, but part of it is like first do no harm. But having this weight centric approach or these biases as a physician, not intentionally, unintentionally, you may be causing harm in your diagnoses, especially or your solutions to whatever's going on. Yes, exactly, Brooke. And when I ask patients about this, I, I was giving a, I was going to be giving a talk at uh, one of the um, academies of family physicians, and so I asked on social media, "What do you want me to tell these doctors about your lived experience in a larger body?" And they said, "Don't assume that I don't exercise." Don't give me weight loss advice that I didn't ask for. Um, if I come in with a problem, find out about that problem. Don't immediately assume that it's due to my body weight and so on and so forth. There's been a lot of studies now on weight stigma, fortunately. Um, and one, one of the conclusions that they find over and over again is that patients are less likely to go in for screening procedures if they're, if they're worried that their clinician is going to tell them that they you know, need to lose weight or didn't lose weight or they regained weight or whatever it is. So they may avoid that. Um, they may not actually even hear some of the medical advice they're being given, and that's going to lead to lower adherence to any medical advice and so on. So it, it's a complicated problem. And I, and I guess I could just sum this up by saying that, you know, bias is a social justice issue. We people deserve to be cared for in whatever body they show up in. And, and, you know, not to complicate this further, but there are also a lot, there's a lot of overlap between racism and weightism, so to speak. And people of color are disproportionately affected by this weight centric approach to health. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier, just kind of the quick, conversations doctors are often forced to have because let's say they only have 15 minutes might even be generous. Maybe I've even heard, you know, I have physician friends that it's more like seven to 10 at times. And so I'm wondering just, do you ever think the weight loss conversation is appropriate or do you think it's best not had in that seven to 10 minute meeting and had elsewhere with another type of professional or, you know, like how do doctors handle this seven to 10 minutes? I mean, this is probably a larger issue, but um, no, how do you go about the appointment? You know, if let's say weight loss may be a beneficial intervention, but you don't have the time to talk about all the behavior modifications and things in that seven to 10 minutes? I, I really think it's a good question and it kind of gets to one of the core problems that we have in, in healthcare, which is that we don't have enough time to deal with these complicated issues. So rather than a clinician defaulting to handing someone a 1400 calorie diet or referring them back to Weight Watchers or whatever that clinician's favorite diet is, I think a conversation that go, and oftentimes, so if the, if the patient doesn't bring it up, then you don't need to bring it up. I mean, that's part of what I would do. I would focus on what will deliver the most benefit for the time that you have. If the patient brings it up, I think it's appropriate to acknowledge 
that individual's concern about their weight because we live in a in a thin idealized culture and it's hard if you don't match up to the to the cultural ideal it's difficult it's hard to fit in seats it's hard to to go anywhere without people thinking they can tell you what you should and shouldn't have in your grocery cart so if someone says they want to lose weight it's completely understandable and i wouldn't argue with them about that what I might say is something like, yeah, it's it's really challenging in our fat phobic culture or our, you know, our, our current diet culture. However, what I can do with you is help you focus on behaviors that will improve your well-being. Have you thought about making any small changes? You know, for example, you know, are you are you walking? Are you getting exercise? Are you eating fresh fruits and vegetables? That sort of thing. And and really steer the conversation toward a small change that the person can practice consistently and that you can follow up on in the next 10 minute visit that you have. Mm hmm. I guess that's kind of one way healthcare would look different if it successfully shifted to a weight neutral approach. But I guess in your ideal view, how else would healthcare look different than it does now? I think patients would have a lot less shame. I think they would be more willing to pursue their medical care, their health care, their preventive care if they weren't worried about being shamed in their doctor's office. Um, you know, even something as simple as do we need to be putting people on a scale in the middle of the hallway, announcing their weight to everyone that's within earshot, where in our culture, many of the th actually not in our culture, but in healthcare, many of the things we do are not impacted by an individual's weight. We've been taught that we need to get this metric. But in fact, the research shows that we'd be better off exchanging out weight in our vital signs for some measure of fitness, some measure of, of physical fitness. We don't do that because it's so much easier to put people on a scale and then calculate out of BMI on the, on the health, uh, electronic health record. But in fact, if we could just decrease the impulse to weigh everybody that comes in the door when they're coming in for completely unrelated issues. Right. Hey there, health investor. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Just popping in here for a quick minute to share an exciting opportunity with you. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in sustainable weight loss. If you've been struggling to lose weight and actually keep it off, I'd love to connect with you in my group or one-on-one -on -one coaching program. Unlike restrictive, hard-to-follow diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed habits and an everything-in-moderation mindset so that you can lose weight permanently, feel completely in control of your cravings, have steady energy throughout the day, and stick with healthy habits long-term. To learn more about my coaching programs and apply to work with me, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram at thehealthinvestment. Now, back to the episode. Uh, it sounds like it's just, which rightly so, I mean, we're humans, right? And the healthcare system is built by humans, but it's a lot of kind of path of least resistance 
behaviors on the side of healthcare right now that it's just kind of this is what we've always done. But there's other data that would be more informative. Mm-hmm. And and also, I'm not saying that weight is never a factor. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying, though, is that we are in a weight-centric culture right now. And it is way overemphasized in, in many aspects of, of our world today. What we, if we could take the focus off of it or decrease the focus and start looking at a broader picture, a broader range of metrics that help us assess an individual's health risk and, and overall well-being, I think we would be in a much better place. Not to mention the fact that if, if patients felt more comfortable in a healthcare environment and less likely to be stigmatized or, or shamed for their body size, I think we as clinicians would have a better opportunity to prevent certain conditions and help guide people toward management of diabetes, hypertension, and so forth. Mm. I support clients with the small habit building as you're talking about and kind of checking in and seeing, does that work for your lifestyle or not? And, you know, how could we tweak it? And every, I mean, I can't say every, but most clients at some point have a doctor's appointment and they have to step on the scale. And so we always have this conversation about, you know, they've stopped using the scale because they used it dieting before. And now they're focusing on just, adding a fruit or a vegetable to every meal and going for a five minute walk, even during their lunch break, just these tangible things. And they're feeling so much better. They're having energy. They feel free around food. I mean, all the good things. And then it's just, I mean, puns come in here, but the weight of like the weighing at the doctor's office Mm -hmm. that is on their shoulders all week. And so I had one client go and say, Hey, I'm working with this nutrition coach and I really don't want to know the number, you know, I'll step on it if I must or whatever. And so they got on it, but then the nurse decided that it was 10 pounds down from the previous time they were there. So she figured they would want to know because this is a celebratory thing. So she said, Oh, I know you don't want to know, but great news. You lost 10 pounds since the last time you were here. But then in her mind, she was frustrated because she felt more like she lost more than 10 pounds. I mean, it was just this whole thing. And so it seems that even if you request not to hear the number for any reason, it's just hard because somebody that is going to think, oh, no, it's good news. Well, that's our, that's our centric approach. It's automatically yeah. better if you are thinner. That doesn't account for people who may have cancer. It doesn't account for the huge number of people that have eating disorders or had an eating disorder in the past. Knowing their weight can be very, very triggering. And the assumption that weighing less is automatically going to make people feel good tells you that we also have the belief that then weighing more automatically is going to make you feel bad. And of course, because most people, the weight loss industry, uh, Dr. Deb Burgard, who's a, is a very effective fat activist, she says, we need to stop calling it the weight loss industry and call it what it is, the weight cycling industry. Because the vast majority of people will not lose weight permanently, especially if they're doing these kind of quick fix sorts of things, and they will end up gaining their weight back. And so now what does that nurse or that MA say when the person steps on the scale and they're back to where they were or more? Or maybe the 
the patient themselves knows that they've regained that 10 pounds and they don't want to go back in because that person mentioned it and noticed it. And now they're going to notice the other way as well. So again, our weight center culture just makes the assumption that weighing less is always better and that that it's good to want to, to weigh less. And, and I think in your in your example here, I think you're doing exactly the right thing by coaching your clients to, to not be focused on their weight as a measure of the changes that are happening. Right. And I can't tell you how many times somebody comes to me because they want to lose weight. And then we take the focus away from the weight loss. And they say, if I didn't lose a single pound more, I wouldn't go back to the way I was before because I just feel so much better. I mean, the word feel comes up so often. Yes. Just I feel just lighter overall in terms of I can eat everything in moderation and I can move my body in ways that feel good, not because I'm trying to burn off calories I ate or plan to eat. I mean, if that is the focus and you just constantly are working on adding little habits that help you feel your best. I mean, everything changes. That's for the right. Everything yeah. changes. You're exactly right. And again, where, where they're going to bump into problems is they then end up in the healthcare system that hasn't caught on yet. I mean, a lot of coaches, a lot of dietitians, a lot of therapists, not all, not all, but there are a lot of us who are really on board with this idea of helping people with these small changes that are sustainable for overall well-being. But the the medical medical establishment hasn't caught on quite yet. Uh, one of the things I should mention, and I'll, I would be really happy to send it to you if you'd like to include it in the show notes, but out of that paper that we were talking about at the beginning, there we I created a graphic for weight-inclusive patient care practices. And it looks at things that the clinician themselves can do, things that the practice can do, and then looks at larger societal issues. And so they're very specific, mm. actionable steps that if nothing else, if you used it as a guide or maybe a conversation in one of your staff meetings to talk about whether there are some very simple things that you can do to Im improve the kind of care that you're giving to your patients of all sizes. Right. It sounds like even just moving the scale out of the main hallway mm -hmm. or just just making the oath to each other as a staff that no matter what it reads, we're not going to name it or Compliment celebrate it. Or, yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah, yeah. I would love for you to send that. Yeah, I will. I will. I mean, because there's even really basic things like having seating in your in your lobby. I mean, it, it, there's a there's something called microaggressions, which is basically the death by a thousand cuts. If you walk into a, a physician's office or a, or a hospital and there is no safe place for you to place your body while you're waiting, that tells you something about how your your body is valued by that practice. So something as simple as having some seats that fit larger bodies that really appear stable, maybe some without arms, some wider seats with arms for people with of varying abilities. That sends a very clear message that we value people in all bodies. Just comes down to just human dignity, yes. right? Everything you're saying, it's just making me think of how we approach who's valued yes. in society. That's right. Right. 
Wow. On your website, uh, you provide dozens of awesome materials. And I know I sent you <laughs> this list ahead of time of all of these topics I wanted to discuss from your blog, but we will definitely send people there. You have just so many mindful eating resources. And I would love if you could define in your words, what you mean by mindful eating and the mindful eating cycle. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for asking, because I think for me personally, as a person with disordered eating years ago, it really transformed the way I think about eating and moving my body and self-care. So mindfulness in general, a really simple definition is non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. The truth is that all actions take place in the present moment. So again, going back to the weight conversation as an example, weight is off in the future or reflects past, but in the present moment, you cannot change your weight. That is not something that is under your immediate um, decision-making process. So this idea of mindfulness as an, as a way of approaching behavior change is really powerful. Specifically, mindful eating is eating with intention and attention. So intention is purpose and attention is awareness. So intention and attention. So if you bring purpose and awareness to your eating, it starts to open up a whole new way of thinking about food. The old way is that certain foods are bad and certain foods are good, or certain amounts of foods are bad and, and other amounts are good. What this does is it allows you to make decisions moment by moment that work for you in that moment with uh, my favorite intention with the intention of feeling better now right now not someday when i lose weight or someday when my cholesterol is finally down but right now how can i eat in a way that helps me feel better hmm. so that's kind of the general idea of mindful eating what was hard about that as I was trying to really understand how this could help people is that it wasn't very practical. So I developed a format, a, a, a process, if you will, called the mindful eating cycle that really breaks the decisions around mindful eating or mindfulness or around eating into six categories. Why am I eating? When do I eat? What do I eat? How do I eat? How much do I eat? And then where do I invest the fuel that I've consumed? Those six questions address every, every single thing that has ever been brought to me as a challenge with an individual's eating. And, and oftentimes, honestly, it's more than one decision point that's causing a person um, a, a challenge. But it's really, really helpful to begin to think about how you're making decisions in a broader sense, not just what you're eating or how many calories you're consuming or even how many calories you're burning, but really starting to think about, well, why am I eating in the first place? Does my body need fuel or am I eating in response to some emotional or physical trigger right now, for example? Hmm. That's really 
about. I'm sure you have a specific blog post I can go relook, but on the mindful eating cycle for me to link, is that true? Yes. You know, what I would love to do, Brooke, is I'll give you a link where people can download the first chapter of eat what you love, love what you eat. Um, it's free, uh, but it describes the mindful eating cycle in detail and it applies different patterns of eating, specifically instinctive eating, overeating and restrictive eating to that cycle. So I think it'll be even more helpful. It's a lot more than I could ever share with you in, in the time that we have left. Perfect. Perfect. I can't wait. What you're, I mean, what you just said, just, I had this aha moment. It's just so brilliant. I think of, you can't change your weight in that present moment. So how can you focus on like a small win of how can I just feel better today and focusing food choices around that. And that doesn't mean never eating the cookie because, you know, sometimes the cookie is what helps you feel better. Absolutely. Like feeding your emotion or your joy. I mean, there's a, a baked chocolate chip, gooey, topped in sea salt cookie looking at me at a bakery. Like that is definitely going to help me feel better. Well, and, and <laughs> you know, your, your point is really important, Brooke, because again, diet culture makes that food bad or it makes it a cheat food or something, a, a red light food or a yellow light, you know, it makes it somehow special and puts it up on a pedestal. When you're approaching your eating from this perspective that we're talking about, from a mindful eating perspective, the cookie is not up on a pedestal. It's on the table with everything else. The choice to eat the cookie is an inside out choice. Is this what I really, really, really want right now? Would it taste delicious to me? Would I, would I get pleasure out of eating it or pleasure in sharing it with my friend that I'm shopping with or so forth? Or is it, oh, it looks delicious. It's beautiful. I'm, I'm really hungry right now. And I've got this whole afternoon. I really need some protein and I'd love, you know, some produce, whatever it is. I mean, you get to make decisions, not based on whether you're being good or bad, but based on how you want to feel in that moment and taking in all the information available to you. What you're saying is making me think of this video I saw on TikTok of all places, but this woman was kind of talking about her journey with mindful eating and she came up with these questions she asked her, or I guess it's not really questions. She has these two things she tells herself. So she says, eat what you want, add what you need. And so when she, she did an example the other day of little frozen corn dogs. And so she was really wanting those. And so she thought, okay, I really want these. She put those on her plate and then she thought, add what you need. What does my body need right now? That's going to help me feel better. And then she added some vegetables to the plate as well. Um, and so she does a lot of videos where she just kind of shows this. And I thought that was just such a great way to think about it because you're still enjoying the thing that you love, but then also a lot of times the kind of fun foods don't help you feel your best. And it, they, if you paired it with water or like a vegetable or something, you might feel better afterwards. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't know if you've seen her, but no, I haven't. I haven't, you know, we talk about it in terms of balancing eating for enjoyment with eating for nourishment or eating mm -hmm. for nourishment and eating for enjoyment, that both components are important for satisfaction. I mean, one of the reasons that people will eat a lot of food is because they're not even enjoying what they're eating. They're eating something they don't like or something they think they should. 
they're resisting the foods they think they shouldn't, and they're craving those and eventually get around to them anyway, versus making a conscious choice that, you know, yeah, it's not a problem. Now, when we resist foods, again, using your gooey salted chocolate chip cookie, <laughs> which I think I'm going to have to have some, yeah. <laughs> one of these days here. But when we're using that as our example, if we're thinking that that's a bad food and we shouldn't be eating it, then if we finally break the restraint and have it, it's harder to stop because we're not connected to how we want to feel. We're connected to the fact that we've already blown it. We might as well keep eating and then we'll be good again tomorrow. This is such a common pattern in the people that I work with. Without a doubt, many, many of the people I work with have a restrictive component to what they perceive to be a problem with with eating too much. And a lot of times it's coming because they're thinking in terms of good or bad. And when you just start eating and realizing that satisfaction is a good thing, I mean, your cravings just kind of melt away because you're eating the things you like and they're not off limits and you feel more in control and intentional about food. I posted a video the other day of these spaghetti squash dehydrated noodles we bought at Costco, I think over two years ago. I mean, they expired in 2021. So a long time ago, and I threw them out because they were now extremely dehydrated and disgusting, but I posted a video sharing I bought this pasta replacement at the time. I don't even know thinking, Oh, spaghetti squash. You can use that as a noodle replacement. I should buy this. And it sat in my pantry for years because that never was satisfying to me. I always reached for the pasta. I'm never going to go for the dehydrated spaghetti squash noodles. And then I just ended up wasting money and food. And so if we just reframe this, then we eat things we like. We don't waste money. We don't waste food. I mean, So many things are improved by this mentality. It's counterintuitive. I mean, people don't don't really believe that it could be possible to actually eat in a more balanced way when you're eating what you love. But in Mm -hmm. truth, it is more satisfying and you're more connected. And I'll even, if you don't mind, I would even suggest that rather than feeling more in control, which kind of implies restriction, Mm. what you what we're really looking for is being in charge. Being in charge means you're making conscious decisions. That's where the mindful eating cycle can really help you is by helping increase your awareness of the hundreds of decisions you make every day regarding food. And oftentimes they're made habitually or they're made out of a restrictive mindset. They're made out of a, well, today is going to be my cheat day and I just won't pay attention and then tomorrow I'll be good. You know, we, there's a lot more effective ways to make decisions and be in charge of your eating than trying to control it or feeling out of control. I love in charge. That's, that's a great uh, language shift. I think that's, that's awesome. Well, okay. As I said, we are going to send your blog, uh, or I'm going to put it in the show notes and everybody's going to go there because you talk about emotional eating during the holidays and rewiring your brain and deprivation and judging your thoughts. I mean, so many things. And so everybody's going to go to your blog and read more there. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Mm. 
I think we'll go back to what I said before. Your health investment is in setting an intention for how you want to feel. How do you want to feel after you eat this meal, after you eat this cookie, after you take this walk? Um, if we're focused on how on on feeling good rather than trying to be good, I think it automatically steers us toward this this innate wisdom that we have for self care. Hmm. I love that. Yesterday, it's been just torrential downpours here in California. And uh, I was thinking that actually yesterday without even realizing it, I couldn't go for a walk outside. And I knew I wasn't going to feel good at night after sitting at my desk all day. I knew I needed to move and I wanted to walk. And so I went into our parking garage and just walked laps. People thought I was nuts, but I was just walking laps around our parking garage, listening to a podcast. But I think what you said there is you find your inner wisdom, you know, deep down, you can kind of figure out ways to make things happen. Mm -hmm. If your goal is, I want to feel good, yeah. your body will somehow figure out a way mm -hmm. to make that happen. And the answers are inside of you. They're not from some external list of rules or diet. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I am so grateful for this conversation and I know everybody's going to want to go to your blog and read your book and find you on all the social media. So where can they do that? What is, what are the links to find you? The simplest place to go is amihungry.com. On our okay. homepage, you're going to find a bunch of resources, free resources and links. And in fact, that that download of the first chapter is down at the bottom. You just click there and it'll take you right to the first chapter. And by the way, Brooke, the name of the first chapter of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat is in charge, not in mm. control. So oh, cool. it'll, it'll help give people a way to actually understand what the difference is. Perfect. So we'll send everybody to your website and I will also put links to your Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. And again, just thank you so much for being here with us today, Michelle. I learned a ton and I know my listeners did as well. Thank you for the privilege. I really appreciate having the conversation. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.